0: Section three of the Democracy of the Constitution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michael fascio The Democracy of the Constitution and Other Addresses and Essays by Henry Cabot Lodge. The Constitution and Its Makers, Part One. Before this society and on such an occasion. TO SPEAK ON ANY TOPIC NOT CONNECTED WITH THE HISTORY OF OUR COMMON COUNTRY WOULD HARDLY BE POSSIBLE AND WOULD CERTAINLY NOT BE FITTING. I HAVE, THEREFORE, CHOSEN A SUBJECT WHICH TOUCHES THE HISTORY OF THE UNITED STATES AT EVERY POINT. I SHALL TRY TO SET BEFORE YOU SOME OF THE RESULTS OF A GREAT WORK IN WHICH YOUR STATE AND MINE ALIKE TOOK PART A CENTURY AND A QUARTER AGO, AND WHICH POSSESSES AN INTEREST AND AN IMPORTANCE AS DEEP AND AS LIVING TODAY AS AT THE MOMENT OF ITS INCEPTION i shall touch upon some present questions but i shall speak without the remotest reference to politics or parties for my subject transcends both i shall speak as a student of our history with reverence for the past and with a profound faith in the future in a word i shall speak simply as an american who loves his country now and forever one and inseparable a little less than twenty-five years ago great crowds thronged the streets of philadelphia men and women were there from all parts of the united states the city was resplendent with waving flags and brilliant with all the decorations which ingenuity could suggest while the nights were made bright by illuminations which shone on every building great processions passed along the streets headed by troops from the thirteen original states marching in unusual order with delaware at the head because that little state had been the first to accept the great instrument of government which now having attained its hundredth year was celebrated in the city of its birth. Behind the famous hall where independence was declared, an immense crowd listened to commemorative speakers, and the President of the United States, a Democrat, honored the occasion with its presence and his words. Two years later, in 1889, the same scenes were repeated in New York. Again the cannon thundered, and again flags waved above the heads of the multitude gathered in the streets, through which marched a long procession, both military and civil, headed as before by the representatives of the original thirteen states. Again, at a great banquet, addresses were delivered, and once more the President of the United States, this time a Republican, honored the occasion by his presence, and in the name of all the people of the country praised the work of our ancestors. In Philadelphia we celebrated the 100th anniversary of the formation of the Constitution of the United States. In New York, We commemorated the one hundredth anniversary of the inauguration of the government which that constitution had brought into being. Through all the rejoicings of those days, in every spoken and in every written word, ran one unbroken strain of praise for the great instrument, and of gratitude to the men who, in the exercise of the highest wisdom, had framed it and brought it forth. All men recalled that it had made a nation, from that thirteen jarring states, that it had proved in its interpretation flexible to meet new conditions and strong to withstand injustice and wrong, that it had survived the shock of civil war, and that, under it, liberty had been protected and order maintained. The paean of praise rose up from all parts of this broad land, unmarred by a discordant note. Everyone agreed with Gladstone's famous declaration, That the constitution of the united states was the greatest political instrument ever struck off on a single occasion by the minds of men we seemed indeed by all we then said and did to justify those foreign critics who reproached us with our kind reverence for our constitution and our almost superstitious belief in its absolute wisdom and unexampled perfections those celebrations of the framing of the constitution and of the inauguration of the government have been almost forgotten. More than twenty years have come and gone since the cheers of the crowds which then filled the streets of New York and Philadelphia, since the reverberations of the cannon, and the eloquent voices of the orators died away into silence. And with those years, not very many after all, a change seems to have come in the spirit which at that time pervaded the American people from the President down to the humblest citizen in the land instead of the universal chorus of praise and gratitude to the framers of the Constitution, the air is now rent with harsh voices of criticism and attack. While the vast mass of the American people, still believing in their Constitution and their government, look on and listen, bewildered and confused, dumb thus far from mere surprise, and deafened by the discordant outcry so suddenly raised against that which they have always reverenced and held in honor many excellent persons believe apparently that beneficent results can be attained by certain proposed alterations in the constitution often i venture to think without examination of the history and theory of government and without measuring the extent or weighing the meaning of the changes which are urged upon us but it is also true that every one who is in distress or in debt or discontented now assails the constitution merely because such is the present passion every reformer of other people's misdeeds all of that numerous class which is ever seeking to promote virtue at somebody else's expense pause in their labors to point out the supposed shortcomings of our national charter every raw demagogue every noisy agitator incapable of connected thought and seeking his own advancement by the easy method of appealing to envy malice and all uncharitableness those unlovely qualities in human nature which so readily seek for gratification under the mask of high-sounding and noble attributes. All such people now lift their hands to tear down or remake the Constitution. In House and Senate one can hear attacks upon it at any time and listen to men deriding its framers in their work. No longer are we criticized by outsiders for having a superstitious reverence for our Constitution, Quite recently I read an article by an English member of Parliament, Mr. L. T. Hobhouse, a liberal, I believe, with socialist proclivities, who said that this reproach of an undue veneration for the Constitution ought no longer be brought against us, because beneficent and progressive spirits were already beginning to pull it to pieces, and were seeking to modernize it in conformity with the clamor of the moment. All this is quite new in our history, we have as a people deeply reverenced our constitution we have realized what it has accomplished and what protection it has given to ordered freedom and individual liberty even the abolitionists when they denounced the constitution for the shelter which it afforded to slavery did not deny its success in other directions and their hostility to the constitution was one of the most deadly weapons used against them the enmity to the constitution and the attacks upon it which have developed in the last few years present a situation of the utmost gravity. If allowed to continue without answer, they may mislead public opinion and produce the most baneful results. The people of the United States may come to believe that all these attacks, in a measure, at least, are true. Therefore, if they are not true, their falsity ought to be shown. Beside the question of the maintenance or destruction of the Constitution of the United States All other questions of law and politics sink into utter insignificance. In its presence, party lines should disappear, and all sectional differences melt away like the early mists of dawn before the rising sun. The Constitution is our fundamental law. Upon its provisions rests the entire fabric of our institutions. It is the oldest of written constitutions. It has served as a model for many nations, both in the old world and in the new. It has disappointed the expectations of those who opposed it, convinced those who doubted, and won a success beyond the most glowing hopes of those who put faith in it. Such a work is not to be lightly cast down or set aside, or, which would be still worse, remade by crude thinkers and by men who live only to serve and flatter in their own interests the emotion of the moment. We should approach the great subject as our ancestors approached it, simply as Americans with a deep sense of its seriousness, and with a clear determination to deal with it only upon full knowledge and after the most mature and calm reflection the time has come to do this not only here and now but everywhere throughout the country let us first consider who the men were who made the constitution and under what conditions they worked then let us determine exactly what they meant to do a most vital point for much of the discussion to which we have been treated thus far has proceeded upon a complete misapprehension of the purpose and intent of the framers of the constitution finally let us bring their work and their purposes to the bar of judgment so that we may decide whether they have failed whether in their theory of government they were right or wrong then and now or whether their work has stood the test of time is broad based on eternal principles of justice and if rent or mangled or destroyed Would not in its ruin bring disaster and woes inestimable upon the people who shall wreck their great inheritance. And like, the base Indian throw a pearl away richer than all his tribe. First, then, of the men who met in Philadelphia in May 1787, with doubts and fears oppressing them, but with calm, high courage, and with a noble aspiration to save their country from the miseries which threatened it, to lead it out from the wilderness of distractions in which it was wandering blind and helpless into the light so that the chaos hateful alike to god and man might be ended and order put in its place it is the fashion just now to speak of the framers of the constitution as worthy able and patriotic persons whom we are proud to have embalmed in our history but toward whom no enlightened man would now think of turning seriously for either guidance or instruction So thoroughly has everything been altered, and so much has intelligence advanced. It is commonly said that they dealt wisely and well with the problems of their day, but that of course they knew nothing of those which confront us, and that it would be worse than folly to be in any degree governed by the opinions of men who lived under such wholly different conditions. It seems to me that this view leaves something to be desired, and is not wholly correct or complete. I certainly do not think that all wisdom died with our fathers, but I am quite sure that it was not born yesterday. I fully realize that in saying even this I show myself to be what is called old-fashioned, and I know that a study of history, which has been one of the pursuits of my life, tends to make a man give more weight to the teachings of the past than they are now thought to deserve. Yet, after all allowance is made. I cannot but feel that there is something to be learned from the men who established the government of the united states and that their opinions the result of much and deep reflection are not without value even to the wisest among us on questions of this character i think their ideas and conclusions are not lightly to be put aside for after all however much we may now gently patronize them as good old patriots long since laid in their honored graves they were nonetheless very remarkable men, who would have been eminent in any period of history, and might even, if alive now, attain to distinction. Let us glance over the list of delegates to the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia in 1787. I find, to begin with, that their average age was forty-three, which is not an extreme senectitude, and the ages range from Franklin, who was eighty-one, to John Francis Mercer of Virginia, who was twenty-eight. Among the older men who were conspicuous in the convention were Franklin, with his more than eighty years, Washington, who was fifty-five, Roger Sherman, who was sixty-six, and Mason and Wythe of Virginia, who were both sixty-one. But when I looked to see who were the most active forces in that convention, I found that the New Jersey plan was brought forward by William Patterson, who was forty-two, that the Virginia Plan was proposed by Edmund Randolph, who was thirty-four, while Charles Pinckney, of South Carolina, whose plan played a large part in the making of the Constitution, was only twenty-nine. The greatest single argument, perhaps, which was made in the convention was that of Hamilton, who was thirty. The man who contributed more, possibly, than any other to the daily labors of the convention, and who followed every detail, was Madison, who was thirty-six. The Connecticut Compromise was very largely the work of Ellsworth, who was 42, and the Committee on Style, which made the final draft, was headed by Governor Morris, who was 35. Let us note, then, at the outset that youth and energy, abounding hope, and the sympathy for the new times stretching forward into the great and uncharted future, as well as high ability, were conspicuous among the men who framed the Constitution of the United States. Their presiding officer was Washington, one of the great men of all time, who had led the country through seven years of war, and of whom it has been said by an English historian that no nobler figure ever stood in the forefront of a nation's life. Next comes Franklin, the great man of science, the great diplomatist, the great statesman and politician, the great writer, one of the most brilliant intellects of the eighteenth century who in his long life had known cities and men as few others have ever known them. There was Hamilton, one of the greatest constructive minds that modern statesmanship has to show, to whose writings German statesmen turned when they were forming their empire forty years ago, and about whom in these later days books are written in England, because Englishmen find in the principal author of the Federalist the great exponent of the doctrines of successful federation there too was madison statesman and lawmaker wise astute careful destined to be under the government which he was helping to make secretary of state and president roger sherman was there sagacious able experienced one of the leaders of the revolution and a signer of the declaration of independence as he was of the constitution trained and eminent lawyers were present in philadelphia in that memorable summer of seventeen eighty seven such men as Ellsworth, and Wilson, and Mason, and Wythe. It was, in a word, a very remarkable body which assembled to frame a constitution for the United States. Its members were men of the world, men of affairs, soldiers, lawyers, statesmen, diplomatists, versed in history, widely accomplished, deeply familiar with human nature. I think that without an undue or slavish reverence for the past, or for the men of a former generation, we may fairly say that in patriotism and in intellect, in knowledge, experience, and calmness of judgment, these framers of the Constitution compare not unfavorably with those prophets and thinkers of today who decry the work of 1787, who seek to make it over with all modern improvements, and who with unconscious humor declare that they are engaged in the restoration of popular government. That phrase is in itself suggestive that which has never existed, cannot be restored. If popular government is to be restored in the United States, it must have prevailed under the Constitution as it is, and yet those who, just now, are so devoured by anxiety for the rights of the people, propose to effect the restoration they demand by changing the very Constitution under which popular government is admitted by their own words to have existed. I will point out presently the origin of this confusion of thought, it is enough to say now that for more than a century no one questioned that the government of the constitution was in the fullest sense a popular government in eighteen sixty three lincoln in one of the greatest speeches ever uttered by man declared that he was engaged in trying to save government by the people nearly thirty years later when we celebrated the one hundredth anniversary of the constitution the universal opinion was still the same all men then agreed that the government which had passed through the fires of civil war was a popular government. Indeed, this novel idea of the loss of popular government, which it is proposed to restore by mangling the Constitution under which it has existed for more than a century, is very new, in fact hardly ten years old. This first conception of our Constitution as an instrument of popular government, so long held unquestioned, was derived from the framers of the Constitution themselves, They knew perfectly well that they were founding a government which was to be popular in the broadest sense. The theory now sedulously propagated that these great men did not know what they were about, or were pretending to do one thing while they really did another, is one of the most fantastic delusions with which agitators have ever attempted to mislead or perplex the public mind. The makers of the Constitution may have been right, or they may have been wrong in the principles upon which they acted, or in the work they accomplished, but they knew precisely what they meant to do, and why they did it. No man in history ever faced facts with a clearer gaze than George Washington, and when, after the adjournment of the convention, he said, We have raised a standard to which the good and wise can repair. The event is in the hands of God. He labored under no misapprehension as to the character of the great instrument, where his name led all the rest it is the fashion to say that since then great changes have occurred and wholly new conditions have arisen of which the men of seventeen eighty seven could by no possibility have had any knowledge or anticipation this is quite true they could not have foreseen the application of steam to transportation or of electricity to communication which have wrought greater changes in human environment than anything which has happened to man since those dim prehistoric unrecorded days when someone discovered the control of fire invented the wheel and devised the signs for language masterpieces of intelligence with which even the marvels of the last century cannot stand comparison the men of the constitution could as little have foreseen what the effects of steam and electricity would be as they could have anticipated the social and economic effects of these great inventions or the rapid seizure of the resources of nature through the advances of science and the vast fortunes and combinations of capital which have thus been engendered could they however with prophetic gaze have beheld in a mirror of the future all these new forces at work so powerful as to affect the very environment of human life even then they would not i think have altered materially the constitution which they were slowly and painfully perfecting. They would have kept on their way, because they would have seen plainly what is now too often overlooked and misunderstood, that all the perplexing and difficult problems born of these inventions, and of the changes, both social and economic, which have followed were subjects to be dealt with by laws, as the questions arose, and laws and policies were not their business. They were not making laws to regulate or to affect either social or economic conditions, their work was not only higher but far different they were laying down certain great principles upon which a government was to be built and by which laws and policies were to be tested as gold is tested by a touchstone upon the work in which they were engaged social and economic changes or alterations in international relations and political conditions no matter how profound or unforeseen and none could have been more profound or unforeseen than those which have actually taken place, had little bearing or effect. They were framing a government, and human nature was the one great and controlling element in their problem. Human nature, with its strength and its weakness, its passions and emotions so often dominating its reason, its selfish desires and its nobler aspirations, was the same then as now. There is no factor so constant in human affairs as human nature itself and in its essential attributes it is the same today as it was among the builders of the pyramids. As to the principles of government, which the framers of the Constitution wished to adapt to that portion of human nature which had gained a foothold on the North American continent, there was little to be discovered. There is no greater fallacy than to suppose that new and fundamental principles of government are constantly to be invented and wrought out. Laws change, and must change, with the march of humanity across the centuries, as it alteration finds in the conditions about it. But fundamental principles and theories of government are all extremely old. The very words in which we must express ourselves when we speak of forms of government are all ancient. Let me recall a few facts, which every schoolboy knows, and which any one can obtain by indulging in that too-much-neglected exercise of examining a dictionary. Anarchy, for example is the Greek word rule, or command, with the alpha privative in the form of an prefixed, and means the state of a people without government. Monarchy is the rule of one. Oligarchy is the rule of a few. We cannot state what our own government is without using the word democracy, which is merely the Greek word demokratos, and means popular government, or the rule of the people. Aristocracy ideally as Aristotle had it, is the rule of the best. But even in those days it meant in practice the rule of the best-born, or nobles. Plutocracy is the rule of the rich. Autocracy, self-derived power, the unlimited authority of a single person. Ochlocracy is the rule of the multitude, for which we have tried to substitute the hideous compound mobocracy. As with the words so with the things of which the words are the symbol. The people who invented the one had already devised the other. The words all carry us back to Greece, and all these various forms of government were well known to the Greeks, and had been analysed and discussed by them with a brilliancy, a keenness, and an intellectual power which have never been surpassed. If you will read The Republic and the Laws of Plato, and supplement that study by an equally careful examination of what aristotle has to say on government you will find that those great minds have not only influenced human thought from that time to this but that there is little which they have left unsaid it is the fashion for example to speak of socialism as if it were something new a radiant discovery of our own time which is to wipe away all tears the truth is that it is very old as old in essence as human nature, for it appeals to the strong desire in every man to get something for nothing, and to have someone else bear his burdens, and do his work for him. As a system, it is amply discussed by Plato, who, in the Republic, urges measures which go to great extremes in this direction. In the fourth century of our era, a faction called the circumcellans were active as socialists, and caused great trouble within the weakening empire of Rome. The real difficulty historically with the theories of socialism is not that they are new, but that they are very, very old, and wherever they have been put in practical operation on a large scale, they have resulted in disorder, retrogression, and in the arrest of civilization and progress. Broadly stated, there have been only two marked additions to theories or principles of government since the days of the Greeks and the Romans. One is the representative principle developed by the people of england in the mother of parliaments and now spread all over the world and the other is the system of federation on a large scale embracing under a central government of defined powers a union of sovereign and self-governing states which the world owes in its bold and broad application to the men who met at philadelphia to frame our constitution in 1787 With these exceptions, the framers of the Constitution dealt with the theories and systems of government which have been considered, discussed, and experimented with for more than two thousand years, and which are today, a century later, the same as in 1787, unchanged, and with no additions to their number. In order to reach the essence of what the makers of the Constitution tried and meant to do, which it is most important to know and reflect upon deeply before we seek to undo their work, Let us begin by dismissing from our consideration all that is unessential or misleading. Let us lay aside first the word Republic, for a Republic denotes a form, and not a principle. A Republic may be democratic like ours, or an autocracy like that of Augustus Caesar, or an oligarchy like Venice, or a changing tyranny like some of those visible in South America. The word has become, as inaccurate, scientifically speaking, as the word monarchy which may be in reality a democracy as in england or norway constitutional as in italy or a pure despotism as until very lately in russia let us adhere in this discussion to the scientifically exact word democracy next let us dismiss all that concerns the relations of the states to the national government federation as i have said was a single contribution of the Philadelphia Convention to the science of government. The framers of the Constitution, if they did not invent the principle, applied it on such a scale and in such a way that it was practically a discovery, a venture both bold and new, as masterly as it was profoundly planned. With the love of precedents characteristic of their race, they labored to find authority and example in such remote and alien arrangements as the Achaean League, and the Amphictyonic Council. But the failure of these precedents, as such, was the best evidence of the novelty and magnitude of their own design. Their work in this respect has passed through the ordeal of a great war. It has been, and is today, the subject of admiration and study on the part of foreign nations, and not even the most ardent reformer of this year of grace would think, in his efforts to restore popular government, of assailing the union of sovereign states. Therefore, We may pass by this great theme which was the heaviest part of the task of our ancestors in the same way we may dismiss much as it troubled the men of 1787 all that relates to the machinery of government such as the electoral college the tenure of office the methods of electing senators and representatives and the like these matters are important many active thinkers in public life seek to change them not for the better as i believe but nonetheless these provisions concern only the mechanism of government they do not go to the root of the matter they do not affect the fundamental principles upon which the government rests end of section 3